Thanks so much. You guys can be seated. You know, as Scott said, man, he and Karen, they're the greatest, man. I have, I've known them for 30 years. I think one of the first times that they were uh, like youth pastors, young adults pastors in San Jose was like the first time he had me come out back in the 80s, right? That's not like a VH1 special. And uh, so just to see him come here, me and Karen, uh, you guys really got the best. I, I, I say that because it's true. I love him. And I love Karen. They're, they're dear friends, my wife and I. But you guys really got the best. When he shared with me that he'd be coming here and taking the position and uh, Dr. Gordon Anderson transitioning out, I thought, oh, my God, they're not going to skip a beat. Uh, this is something. And that each time I've gone here for chapels, I think it's been about three years, I brag on you guys, and, and this is serious. I brag on you guys in that uh, you guys really go after God. You know, I've gone to uh, some Christian universities, and I would never mention names, but I, I, I was kind of briefed on the front end, and they said, okay, uh, hey, can we talk to you for a second? About one-third of them will want to be there, one-third of them really don't care, and one-third of them do not want to be there. So I'm thinking, we got 66% from neutral to negative, we only got like one-third that want to be there, my God, you know, and I, I, I'm handed, I get it, I'm handed the mic, and I'm like, I got to try to do something in like 17 minutes, you know, and it's awesome to come here and see that you guys are already yeah, bum-rushing the altar, going after God, singing songs of revival, and you can tell it's not just singing songs, you, you can feel the spirit of revival in the house. So if you're an incoming freshman, you're at an awesome institution, which almost seems weird to call it an institution. It sounds like something that's older and dried up. This is a movement here. You're part of a movement, and I really believe that God's got something. If you've got a Bible, if you would go to second, Jeff and the team, awesome worship. Man, incredible, incredible, incredible. If you have a Bible, if you would open up your Bible to uh, 2 Kings chapter 13, you should go in there. We brought... Uh, Jordan and I, Jordan's traveling with me, he's an associate, Jordan's wave at everybody, there's Jordan right there, uh, we brought some resources out there if it will bless you, I've written a book on revival, uh, I read a book right after I was saved by Winky Prattney called Revival, it's principles and practices, wrecked me, truly wrecked me, I had more time I can go into that man, uh, but Winky gave me a forward on this book as well as Mike Bickle, and we've got Judah Smith and Banning Leafshire and Cindy Jacobs and others. But this is a book on revival. I, I make no bones about it. The moment I hit the pulpit, I love to declare and tell you, I believe uh, you need to fasten your Holy Ghost safety belts. You are in the kingdom for, I believe, the most glorious episode and season of kingdom life. I believe a record number of people are about to give their life to Christ. I believe that there's going to be a brand new signs and wonders era that's going to hit the earth. You have got to believe, come on, talking about eschatology, you have got to believe that God is as good a finisher as he is an initiator. And if he began this thing in the book of Acts, in power. He's not going to come back with a church that has less power than when she began. This, the Bible, the church began with, you know, the, the apostles flipping cities. That's like HGTV talk. Okay, you know, you redeem houses. Like, man, Apostle Paul was flipping cities for Jesus. And I believe we're going to see some flipping cities uh, before this thing is over. And you're going to play a big part of that. So I write about, I, 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 not everyone is going to be the historian buff of revival that I am. So I try not to bore you. But I covered probably about 40 different revivals, outpourings, awakenings, and reformers. But I did it in an ESPN highlight reel. But I really spend the majority of time talking about what I believe will be the next uh, revival and how you fit the profile of every revival generation that is launched ahead. So I believe in you. All right. 2 Kings chapter 13, starting verse 14. 
It says, Elijah had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face, said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and their horsemen. And Elijah said, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it, and Elijah put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the east window, and he opened it. Then Elijah said, Shoot, and he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrow. So he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. Somebody say stopped. Come on, say it again. Say stopped. Awesome, awesome. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times and you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Then Elijah died. They buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders and they put the man in the tomb of Elijah. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elijah, he revived and stood on his feet. I uh, gave my life to Jesus Christ at a university. I gave my life to Christ at the University of Pacific, Stockton, California. I was born and raised in West Oakland, California. If anybody pays attention to football, uh, Marshawn Lynch, beast mode, grew up. I'm older than him, but he grew up in my neighborhood. Now he's back with the Oakland Raiders. And uh, I had uh, some challenging uh, circumstances in my testimony. I'm not going to bust it out, but it's safe to say my testimony is a three-part Maury Povich episode. Easily, easily, easily. I gave my life to Christ on a college campus because, to be honest with you, people said, you know, there's always talk like, who led you to the Lord? Uh, Jesus led me to the Lord, okay? And I need to explain. I, I'm sure he leads all of us to the Lord. But I cried out one night after clubbing, right? I, I came back, and I had this kind of point where I was at the brink of a miracle, brink of disaster, depending which way I leaned. And I had this suicide, not thoughts. They say probably of millennials. They say probably nine out of ten of you will have the thoughts, but you'd never carry it out. Uh, I had a plan. I had a strategy. I had a way that I was going to end my life. But my grandmother, who had raised me, my grandmother, she was old school. She was Medea of Diary of a Mad Black Woman, if you want to know my grandma. My grandma don't play. You know, the, the parents today give you talks, timeouts, and, 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 you know, that kind of talks, timeouts, and, and all that toys taken away. That's this end of discipline. On this end is attempted murder. My grandma tried to kill me, and she would do it in public, in front of people, dare folks to call somebody, you know. So my grandmother had been an alcoholic majority of my life. She raised me. My dad was in the picture, not in the picture. Then he was murdered by policemen. And so I'm, 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 I'm jacked up. I mean, there's no other way of saying it. But my grandmother gives her life to Christ, and she challenges me to do the same. So I come back from a night of clubbing. I'm at the University of Pacific, and I cried out to Jesus. Jesus shows up in my dorm room. I see Jesus like I see you. Now, some people could say, okay, that was a metaphorical, your, your eye. No, no, no. I saw Jesus. And people say, what does he look like? He looked like God had took the sun out of the sky in bodily form, set it in my dorm room. The light was so bright, I couldn't even begin to stare at it, kind of like all the folks at the eclipse looking at cereal boxes to try to see that, that you know what I'm saying? This is what I'm going through. And proof of it is my degree is in computer engineering, but now some 30 years later, right, I'm doing this because God so impacted me, and, and I call it, it's the secret weapon of all revivals is encounter. When God allows you to encounter him, 
all bets are off. Uh, Saul of Tarsus is killing Christian one minute. He is dying for the gospel the next minute because of this thing called encounter. Well, this is important to know because, number one, I believe that God is about to release and open up the encounter realm over regions and people that have been resistant to the gospel have been in the open their hearts. But this is what I'm getting after. My grandma was old school. She raised me, raised me in a certain way, and I'll explain it, and then I'm going to share with you this thought. My grandmother, unknowingly, she came from the South. They didn't have much. They were dirt poor. When you heard the term dirt poor, my grandmother, she was dirt poor. She had a sixth-grade education, uh, but she proved that you could be wise and not necessarily educated, like there's a bunch of educated people that aren't necessarily wise, right? So she taught me some things, and she taught me etiquette. I had a buddy named Ray Jones. We called him Ray Ray. And she says, when you go over Ray Ray's house, right, Miss Jones is going to offer you some food. But you got to understand, in my neighborhood, we was po, okay, po. That's like you cannot afford to buy the vow of Wheel of Fortune for $250 from Vanna because you don't have that kind of money, okay? You don't have that cash flow. So we just po. And so she said, when you go over the house, she's going to ask you if you want to eat. You say no. She asked you a second time. You say no again. She asked you a third time, do you want something to eat? You can say yes, but don't eat anything, you know, in terms of their major food. Eat, like, you know, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Eat some spam. Y'all, that, that's not just unwanted junk email, okay? Y'all, y'all spam is a pink meat and gelatin. See, I, I, y'all, I just missed you. You just went over it, like, right? What is that? Okay, we got some help, right? So you could eat something off the menu because why? They were struggling financially to the point that if I ate the main food, that might mean Ray and one of his eight brothers and sisters or Mr. Jones, someone wasn't going to get food if I ate their food. So it stuck with me. Okay, now fast forward. I gave my life to Christ on a college campus. My campus pastor, I gave my life to Christ in Kyle for Campus Ministries. My campus pastor was coming to Texas, and he was going to speak. And so he said, hey, would you like to come? I go, yeah, I'd love to come. So we, we fly into Texas. We have this guy who's an usher, an elder in the church. He comes and picks us up. And it was then that I learned the difference between rich and wealthy. Like, rich people let you know they're rich. Wealthy people is quiet money. You, they have holes in their jeans, old beat-up truck, and they're worth $700, 000, $700 million, you know what I'm saying? And so this guy was wealthy. He was in the oil industry. So he picks us up. He takes us back to his mansion. We're going to stay at his mansion as opposed to a Marriott's or another hotel. As he drives up to his mansion, he says, uh, you guys are going to be staying with me. And so I thought, okay, man, it's awesome. This, this mansion was bigger than the entire apartment complex I grew up in, right? And then he goes behind his mansion, and behind his mansion, his mansion had a mini-me mansion, and that's what we were saying. I'm like, yo, MTV Cribs, you know. I was like, yes. So we pull up, and he says to me, do you want something to eat? Now, here I am. I'm years removed from this lecture my grandmother drilled into me, years removed from being in the west side of Oakland in very urban, poverty-stricken areas. But yet there was this kind of poverty mentality, not talking about economics, I'm talking about what you feel is available to you. A poverty spirit is developed by years of living in mediocrity, where all of a sudden mediocrity becomes your lid. It becomes kind of your autopilot, your default mode. When you have, an, I believe a poverty spirit is literally designed of hell to keep you from walking into the fullness of your inheritance and everything that God would have for you. So when this thing touches you, and, and, and part of the devil's uh, uh, genius is his subtlety. 
I mean, he's got the same tricks he's always used, but he uses this thing. And what he uses is that one of his main things is deception. And one of the things is that he uses this spirit of mediocrity in such a way that you don't realize that you've been settling in areas of your life. You don't realize that when a spirit of poverty, as we will entitle it, when you sit on it, and I, I say it's an anti-revival spirit, when it sits on you is that you think you're going full throttle, pedal to the metal for Christ, but in fact you're coasting, not hosting his presence. I'm here, and the guy says, you want something to eat? And I go, no. He said, do you want something to eat? You got to be hungry. You're full of guys are flowing from, and I was starved. You know, as any college student, you're starved, right? I mean, my seven packs of top ramen for a dollar was not filling a brother up, okay? And so he asked me again. I said, no, a third thing he asked, third time he asked me, and I said, well, I'll take a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. True story. You think I'm joking. This is what I said. The guy opens up his refrigerator. He had a personal chef come cook us stuff. I'm not exaggerating. He had, like, prime rib steak. He had, like, something under glass. I don't know. It looked like pheasant under glass, but I had never seen pheasant under glass. I wasn't sure what kind of bird it was. He had all this uh, filet mignon. He had all these expensive meats. And he's looking at me like, that's all you want? And, and he closed the door, and I, I'm, I'm stuck. I'm back, little Sean in inner city Oakland, and, like, you only ask for peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So he opens up his food pantry, right? Our food pantry was a little cupboard above our sink in our apartment. He opened up Costco. Come on, man. It, it, was, it, was, it was huge. People was handing you samples going down the way. He goes all the way to the back and grabs a peanut butter jar that's so neglected it needed a sozo. It needed inner healing. That's how neglected. He opens up the refrigerator. You know when you leave something in the refrigerator too long, the jelly jar stuck to the shelf. He's wrestling to get it off, hands me some bread, and he looks at me. And I was reminded of that story because I felt like the Lord wanted me to share that. And he says, my children are settling for spiritual peanut butter and jelly sandwiches when the filet mignon move of God is available to them. Here's the story of a king, King Joash. And I want to give him a little credit on the front end. He recognized his nation is in a major crisis. The Syrians and the Arameans have decimated his army. They are the original ISIS terrorists. He's recognizing that his entire reign is at jeopardy, his nation is at jeopardy, and they're threatened to exterminate them seemingly as a, not only as a, an army but as a people. He's smart enough to go to the man of God. In crisis, there's something about going to God that I think is so important. So I give him credit for that. He goes to Elisha, and he says, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen, as if to say, hey, man, our army is getting jacked up. We really desperately need you. And so the prophet gives him instructions. He says, I want you to open the window to the east. He opens the window. He says, I want you to shoot this arrow out of this window. And it was towards effect. Now, today, when there's a declaration of war, a president of state, a head of state would sign a declaration of war. But during this time, you would open a window and shoot an arrow in the direction of the people. It wasn't just, uh, we would say it as a symbolic act, but to them, it was more than that. It was a, a, a declaration that we are, we're, we're in battle. We're going to fight. So he opens the window, and he shoots this arrow out. And so the prophet of God, Elisha, says to King Joash, very good. Now he says, and here's the, the, the catch. I want you to shoot till you have destroyed Aphek, until you destroyed the Syrians. And so the guy grabs his quiver. He shoots one arrow. 
He shoots two arrows, and we said the word. He shoots three arrows, and he stopped, and a man of God was angry at him. Now, I, 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 I've read this many times. I've, I've looked at it all the different angles. And I thought, you know, the prophet never told him the exact number of arrows to shoot. At, at a, a casual glance, it seems unfair to get angry at someone, and you just kind of told him to shoot, and they shot three arrows. You didn't say, I want you to shoot six arrows. Because the prophet later said, I was mad at him, he said, you should have shot five or six arrows. Then you would have completely have destroyed the Syrians. But now the inference is, is you're going to live with temporary defeat because you didn't empty the quiver. And I thought, where was in that instruction, where was it to shoot six arrows? And I began to realize it wasn't a quiz of compliance. It was a test of the chest. It was, man, what is in your heart? Now, hold that thought. My vote for the baddest man in the Old Testament, not morally bad, I'm talking about lethal. My vote for the baddest man, uh, who, you know, some people would say Samson, and they would have a great argument. When you could take a jawbone of a donkey and wipe out an entire terroristic group called the Philistines, you bad. Okay, that's just my... You, you had the great right throne judgment. How'd you die? I was in a car crash. How'd you go? Man, I had this disease. How'd you go? Well, what had happened was this dude pick up a job on him upside down. You know, that's not how you want to check out, right? That's, that's not the guy to get my vote. The guy that gets my vote is Elijah. Now, here is, here is what happens. We fast forward, and I read it, that Elijah was sick at the time that King Joash came to see this prophet. He says later he would die. And then fast forwards... But the writer of Kings leaves the connection. They had obviously buried Elijah, and it was a time when the people of God, the Israelites, were, if you were having a funeral procession. They're carrying a guy, and this guy has died, and all of a sudden, a marauding band jumps out to attack him. You have to go from funeral procession mode into fight for my life mode, so you just throw, well, I don't know the guy's name, Bob. You just throw Bob, right? Any place you can because you got to fight. So when they throw him, he lands in this open kind of cave hole. But they're the bones of Elijah. And when the guy who is dead touches Elijah's bones, he's revived. And then the guy, you know, takes, I, I don't know, maybe he charged and he starts running in a battle. I have a tendency to think that they won that battle. When you come back from the dead, you're going to win the battle. But here's my vote for the baddest man in the Old Testament. When you can raise the dead after you're dead, you bad, okay? You bad. Now, what was wrong with this picture? And let me hit this and hit it very quickly. First of all, here was the problem. The problem was, here was a king that had an opportunity in front of him. This whole segment of Scripture begins with an open window and tragically closes, ends with a closed door. That his lack of being abandoned for God actually closed the door to a move of God. Now, here's what I submit to you. The reason why they have this prophet, I believe, dying, his bones having the residue of revival on him, is proof that he went to the grave with revival on him. There's a point in his private chambers where it says, and the prophet laid hands on the king. This is what I'm going to try to build before you. I believe that in that process of putting his hands on, because he certainly didn't need to show a king how to shoot an arrow. I believe that that was an opportunity that here was a king that you were in the room of revival. 
You were in the place of revival. The prophet was revival. He went to the grave with him. You were in a place of revival, but you never let the revival get here. It's great to be in chapel and sing songs and dance and scream and be in the atmosphere. And, and again, it, it doesn't, I'm not trying to imply that if you weren't up front jumping and dancing and stuff and you sat back that you don't have revival. But I know it's very easy in a room this size that you could be in a room of revival, but yet you never let it get your, hit your chest. And in the process of that, doors get closed to you in terms of a move of God. It's one thing, and I pray for revival in the nation, but I, I recognize all revivals need real estate in order to operate, and the first piece of real estate God is looking for is the left center cavity of your chest. This entire ordeal was a test of resolve. It was a test of the chest. He said, and I, I discovered, he didn't tell him how many to shoot, and I think it was important because, it, again, it wasn't a quiz of compliance. It was a test of the chest. He did say this. I want you to strike the arrows till you have destroyed the enemy. So it was all these things. Number one, it demonstrated to him he really didn't hate evil enough. You see, it wasn't that Joash was this wicked, bad king. I mean, he did leave some altars up of idolatry that his dads had put up. But we don't really have a description of him doing all these heinous, evil acts. The problem of him with him is that he stayed under a lid, and when the window of opportunity came, when he could break out, and step into revival because it's in your room. He did not embrace it. That hand of the prophet on the king was a transference of revival. What, what went to a dead guy down the road where he was revived could have been on you when he laid hands on you, but you didn't come with a spirit of abandonment. Before every single move of God, one of the things that God tests, listen to me, fam, one of the things that God tests is the spirit of abandonment. When there was a spirit of abandonment and this, this incredible outpouring of the spirit began, and in its beginning early for you guys, you're, you're, it's not like this is spring semester now. This is the beginning. You're weeks, couple couple weeks right back into school, and already you're at this point. But it's like the hand of revival has been extended to you and has everything to do with right now. And I think what has happened was, is maybe in his own mind, he didn't make the connection between what was happening in the private chambers and what would happen on the battlefield of his nation. The devil works overtime to bring disconnect to cause you to not make the connection between what we do in private, how we approach God in the secret place, has everything to do with what will be released in our region, our territory, and yes, even our nation. Three things that I believe caused him to pull up short. You know, runners, they come out. And I remember in high school, I used to run track, play basketball, right? A guy, some of our guys, right, we're at this school, and some of these students, they didn't really have a heart uh, in terms of when they would see guys that they knew could really beat them. Some of these dudes would pull up, pull a hammy, and act like they couldn't run and feign an injury or whatever. Like, this is a king that, that pulled a hammy before he had to do it. He's shooting once, shooting twice, shooting three times, and looks at the prophet like, didn't I do good? And it's like it shows that a spirit of poverty, something came on you that caused you to believe that mediocrity and settling is okay when a window of opportunity is. You have the steering wheel to change a generation, and that's all that came out of your chest in that moment. Three things caused him to stop, and I will stop after I show you these three things, and they're very quick. Number one, I believe the king didn't recognize his window. He didn't recognize that wasn't just any window. That was a window of opportunity. I was talking to a guy here that I connected. He said he heard me speak in the early 90s, and we're at a church, and the pastor of that church at the time, it was in Detroit, 
uh, Michigan, we went to go spend a weekend with Leonard Ravenhill. That guy is like one of my heroes. He wrote, my, my pastor, when I gave my life to Christ, first book he gave me outside of a Bible was Why Revival Tarries. It marked my life. It, to this day, I remember spending a weekend with Brother Lynn before he went to be with the Lord. If you've never read Why Revival Tarries, get it, read it, get it on your Kindle, whatever you got to do. And he handed me, he, he had this great, he was a poet, but he was a prophet, ultimately, an incredible British speaker. And so he handed me this thing, and he said it to me. He says, Sean, he says, the opportunity of a lifetime must be seized within the lifetime of the opportunity. He didn't recognize the window. You got to recognize the window. We're not just talking about a time. I mean, okay, eclipses, weird storm after storm after storm, racial rioting, crazy stuff going on where it's out in the streets, political division like we perhaps have never seen. But I submit to you that this is a window of opportunity for you as a follower of Christ to rise up in the power of the Spirit with the love of God. It's a test of what's in your chest. He didn't recognize the window. Somebody say window. He didn't see it. And as a result of that, he turned a golden opportunity into a missed opportunity. Second W. I told you I had to go quick. Not only did he not recognize the window, he didn't recognize his weaponry. I think, man, you know, <laughs> there are nations, man, that literally, they got maybe one book within the book of the Bible, a couple pages, and, man, those villages and people, I hear stories of friends of mine that are missionary, man, they would devour, man, the word of God. Some of them literally, that there maybe it might be one Bible amongst an entire group, man, and just, and, and they said, I heard a statistic, the average American has 2.3 Bibles or something in their home or something like to that, to that effect. Uh, I'd heard that at least a while back. I don't know if it's the case now. We're shifting. But I'm thinking, what, what have we taken for granted? Do we know our weaponry? Do you know the power of the blood? Do you know the power of his name? Do you know the power of the gifts of the spirit? Do you know the power of the anointing? Do you know the authority you carry? My fear is that in many instances, myself included, is heaven knows what we got, hell knows what we got, but we don't know what we got. He didn't know, man, those aren't just simple little arrows sitting by there. And I'll give him credit. At least he knew where his arrows were. There's some Christians don't even know where their weapons is at because it's been that long since they used them, okay? Those aren't just arrows, man. This isn't just some symbolic act. He said, I want you to strike. This is about your greatest spiritual weapon. And I think it was Robert Murray McShane says a, 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 a holy man. He used the word awful, but we would use the word awesome. He said a holy man is an awful weapon in the hands of God. And what he meant is to say is awesome. A holy man. That you are the weaponry. That you become a weapon. That it wasn't just the arrows. When you took that thing in the hand, King Joash, you became the weapon and you proved that your weaponry was blunt, that your knife edge was dull, that you weren't ready for the, the moment. And as a result of that, your weaponry fell short. You only shot three arrows, final, final W, and we're done. Is he to understand the wave? When this king put his hand on him, excuse me, the prophet put the hand on the king. There was a prophet before that prophet, Elijah, that had put his hands on Elisha. This dude had a double portion. This could have been quadruple portion, if I'm doing my uh, multiplication right. This could have been a quadruple portion release. You don't recognize the wave. Do you recognize the, the and, and, and you, you're my heart in this. Do you recognize the spiritual giants that have sat right where you sat, that are uh, shaping the world right now, that have gone to NCU? 
Do you recognize the prayers of intercession that have gone before you? Some of your mamas, your daddies, pastors, youth pastors, others. Do you recognize the prophetic words that are over Minneapolis in this region of the nation? This all acts as a wave that's stretching his hand. That if in that moment the test of the chest becomes what will we release, what will we do, how will we respond? It's not how high you jump. It's not how loud you shout. It is the burn of your heart that becomes the ultimate test. It's the acid test of all revivals. And this guy, when tested, dropped back short. If I can get Jeff to come forward. Jesus. What are you aiming at? I think if you're shooting for a break, three out of six arrows is enough. But if you're shooting for a breakthrough, you got to empty your quiver. So many people just want a break. They just, just give me a break, man. I just want to, no, 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 no. You can't do it. What I mean by that, you can't just aim for a break. You got to aim for a breakthrough because there's too much at stake in your generation. As one guy says, the goal of life isn't to arrive at the grave safely. Maybe it should be to arrive at the grave empty, that you emptied out. You emptied the quiver. You didn't, just didn't go halfway. You didn't live your entire Christian walk in mediocrity. I feel that there are students right here that your heart is beginning to burn, not just because of the words of one chapel. It's because it's the encounter realm being open over you that I see there's an abandonment on your generation. You're being marked. You've been marked. You truly have something on you that I believe you are chosen to change the course of history, and we desperately need it. And that story, and, and I saw that scene of that guy drive that car in Charleston, Virginia, and hit folks, and the stuff that was going on, my heart just broke, and I thought, man, is that where we're at as a nation? When I began to see what filled social media, Twitter, and Facebook and what went on and what was reported after that. And I thought what we need now are lovers of Jesus and followers of Christ that were empty in their quiver. The devil isn't holding back. Why should we? It isn't just a quiz of compliance to say come to chapel. You can come and check it off a list. You complied. But that isn't the test for the new breed revivalist. The test is a test of your chest. It's not just that you worship. It's the intensity in which you worship. It isn't just that you pray. It's the intensity in which you pray. It isn't just anymore to show up. As we used to say in the hood and we used to say at our ball games, uh, go big or go home. And this is the time for the believers that have made the decision, we're about to go big because we ain't going home defeated. Bow your heads. Jesus, Lord, I just thank you, God. I just, Father, know that there is something already in the room. I, I, I am not uh, naive enough to think that I'm bringing something. Uh, outside of just uh, carrying a word that you've given me. Lord, I'm joining arms with what has already been deposited, what has already released, what is already resonant, and in the DNA of this spiritual, I believe, uh, uh, dynamic that's already in the atmosphere. And Father, I just pray, I pray right now that God, that something would light our hearts, where there would be this thing that says, God, I want to abandon myself. I know in a moment people are going to have to leave, but I want to do this. Heads bowed, eyes closed, and give this altar call. 1968 Mexico City, 
they had finished the marathon. They're carrying people off, literally on stretchers, because that's a grueling race. Race is far over, and all of a sudden there's a commotion as they see one lone strangler, a runner, number 36, finally come into the stadium in Mexico City in 1968. There's a commotion as they see this guy hobbling and bleeding the entire way, leaving drops of blood as he makes it. And he had fell and injured himself horrifically. And the reporters came to him and said, why didn't you just stop? Many people, when that happens, they stop. And this runner from Tanzania, Africa, made this statement. He said, my country did not send me 7,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to complete the race, to finish the race. You're a generation of finishers. Shoot six arrows. If you're here right now, and I, I, there's a lot of ways I could go, but I just want to do this. If you're saying right now, this is our opening day. If you're saying right now, I, wanna f I want to say yes to God in the area of reviving my heart. I want a spirit of abandonment. I want you in a moment to stand up and come. But I also want to include another group. If you'd be honest and say, you know what, Sean, I, I want to, but my want to is a little weak. I feel a little numb. I've been going through stuff, man. I've, this summer, man, I, stuff's going on in my family. I got crisis. I'm under condemnation. I, I feel like I'm struggling in the area of, of sin. And I, I submit to you that it isn't about the sin. It's about your pursuit of Jesus. When you pursue Jesus, as Thomas Chalmers, the great revivalist, preached, it's the law of expulsion. Is when you go after God, it, expose, it, ex, it expels all the stuff that's been in the way. So if you're saying, Lord, I want to be that arrow. I want you to get up out of your seat. I want you to come find a place that's altar. If you got to stand, stand, sit, sit, kneel, kneel, lay down, prostrate. But if you're saying, Sean, I want this arm of revival. Revival's in the room. It's the test of your chest. If that's you, just come. Worship team, as you just become Father, I'm just going to pray, and we're just going to go right from here. And if there's some leaders or others that you feel led to go around and pray, I feel like this, this first one is about Literally, you abandoning your heart, setting a new trajectory. All revivals call for you to set a fresh trajectory of what you're aiming at. We're not aiming for a break. We're aiming for a breakthrough. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we believe that there's a fire that's being released in this hour. We see the fire of violence, the fire of racism, the fire of natural calamity, division, confusion, Confusion of gender, confusion of ideologies, confusion spiritual. But Lord, we declare that there's ever a time for the people of God to walk in a pure stream of fire, of love, of abandonment. It's now. And Lord, we sign up for that. There was an old song, and it was kind of this thing. I don't want to be, I don't want to be a casual Christian. I don't want to, I don't want to live a lukewarm life. It should have been the cry of Joash. It wasn't. I believe it is our cry, and as a result of that, what we do in here can affect what happens in our nation out there. Lord Jesus, go ahead, team. Let's just begin to worship. I just want you to open up your hearts. I want you even right now to do business with God. You're mature. I want you to say, God, have all of me.
Ask for the fire of the Lord to fall and consume you. Come and burn, oh God. Come and burn within every part of us, God. Lord, mark us, mark us, God, for your purpose. Lord, we say let the revival begin in us. Let it begin in me. It's not enough to be in a room of revival if we don't receive it and walk it out in our chest of fire for God. Consume us. Father, I ask you to break off any complacency. Lord, I ask you, God, to peel off any apathy. Passivity be gone, God. One response when we see the finished work of the cross, Jesus at Calvary, it's abandonment, God. Yes! Hallelujah. I know at different points people have to leave. I want you just to begin to war over your own heart right now. The battle is really for your heart. The battle of the last days in Revelations is over affections. At the end of the day, it is a battle over affections. I want you right now, just take a moment and just declare to the Lord that literally you want that spirit of abandonment, that all your affections are placed on Him, that we're not going to allow the distractions I'll talk about it later. We're not going to allow the sub-narrative to trump the meta-narrative. Lord, there's so many sub-narratives that are fed to us. CNN, MSNBC, and yes, even Fox News. There's sub-narratives. The Word of God, the eternal purposes of the Lord. The vision of Jesus is the meta-narrative for us in this hour. Jesus. 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 Hallelujah. Just begin to do this for a moment. Just begin to put a hand on her shoulder next to you if you feel okay, comfortable. Just begin to pray for that fire. I don't know if, Scott, you need to come a little bit. I'm not sure. Or direct us. But just begin to pray right now. Just begin to pray. Begin to pray for that fire. Begin to pray. That all-consuming fire, Lord, consume us. Consume us. Consume us. We're not just talking about an emotional response, but it is a heart dynamic that does affect your emotions. Even as we're doing it, Scott's coming. Take also an inventory. If King Joash would have stopped and asked, what's causing me to stop? Maybe he wouldn't have stopped. Take inventory. Say, Holy Spirit, what has been causing me to stop? Is it fear? Is it shame? Is it, man, I, I just don't know how to respond when the Spirit of God, whatever it is, just have that dialogue and just ask the Lord just to, to speak.
Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. We're not going to go anywhere. You are free to stay here. We're just going to keep pressing into the things of God. For the last 40 days, there's been about 50 people fasting for 40 straight days up until yesterday. They didn't fast all 40 days, but they took several days of those 40 days leading up to these, these meetings. And um, this is no small thing. We've been asking God to visit our school to mark a new era, to mark a new era, not a new leadership era. And I know this may be a hokey little illustration, but I, I caught the end of, of the Titanic movie the other day on TNT, and everybody's groping for the lifeboats. And as I was worshiping, I saw these different boats come by, and they were worthless boats. One was called relevancy or another boat was called social justice and it couldn't carry anybody and then this boat called truth and presence is all I saw written on that boat came and everybody like in this chapel is groping to get onto that lifeboat in this perverse and wicked generation that scripture calls the generation truth and presence to get into that place of safety we're going to keep worshiping God and getting, we're going to pray for her once we prayed for here. There was a student, come up here, buddy. And he says, I, I don't do this. And I could tell by the how he was telling me, he does, this isn't natural or normal to him, but the Lord just showed him something he just wanted to share quickly with, with the school. As I was praying during that first song, um, I really feel like there is so much um, fear that as students, I mean, I'm, I'm a student here, I, you know, pushing, si pushing aside fear, and um, I got this word to bring fear to the altar, that um, fear is not given by God, and we need to bring fear to the altar, just like the song that, that we've been singing today. So as we're all at the altar, Lord, or as we're at the altar, I... I just want to pray that we'll bring our fear to God, that we'll set it to the altar, that we'll stop sidelining fear and just stop shoving it to the side, but that we'll literally give it to God so that we will drop that fear that God can move through us.